Hello and welcome to the first episode of 2021 for Pakistanomy. I'm Muzair Yunus and joining me today is Hassan Khawar, who is a management and international development consultant, a journalist and a public policy commentator, and a researcher who also has held a few honorary positions. He's a public figure who has 20 plus years of experience in understanding public and private sector and public policy in Pakistan and has taken various undertakings both inside and outside the country. His focus areas are economic growth, public center, public sector enterprise reform and private sector development, including public private partnerships. Hassan is also a former civil service, uh, civil, former civil servant, uh, pardon me, belonging to the Pakistan Administrative Service and has also worked with the private sector. So he has a wealth of knowledge about the inner workings of Pakistan's bureaucracy, how policies crafted and executed. And we're hoping for a really rich discussion here about what's going on in Pakistan in terms of reforms and what's the outlook for 2021 and beyond. So Hassan, first of all, thank you so much for taking out the time and for joining us here on Pakistanomy. Thank you, Zair. Uh, it's a pleasure to be uh, on your show. I have, I've been a keen uh, viewer of your show and it's really a pleasure and honor to be here. Thank you. So I want to jump in with your recent Express Tribune article, which was published on January 4th. Um, you talked about the outlook for 2021 and beyond. You highlighted the things that need to start moving forward. And one of the things that caught my eye was your focus at the end about how the PTI government must, quote, follow through on these plans and take them to fruition, end quote. You were talking about reforms and sort of big, big picture things that need to happen in Pakistan, which pretty much everyone, there's consensus view on that reform has to happen on circular debt, reform has to happen on public center enterprises, etc. But my thought after reading your article was that when governments typically all over the world come into power, the big reforms happen within six to 12, 18 months of them coming in. The PTI is two and a half years into its reign and pretty much is about to enter election mode in the next few months. So why do you think that these difficult reforms for which the plans have now been developed will be executed by a weak coalition government that's also hounded by opposition towards the tail end of its tenure? I'm just curious to understand how do you think that's going to happen? Uh, interesting question is that. So basically, um, what I think is, when we say big ticket items, when we say that the, they have some reforms in the pipeline, I think we have to first of all look at the context. Number one, Pakistan does not have a good track record of ref reforms. So whenever we say big reforms or meaningful reforms, we have fairly modest expectations. They are not big by, by the standard of the world or by the standard of the problems that this country is facing. So let me be very clear. Secondly, uh, we all have to agree that PTI from day one had set a low expectation, right? So people were disappointed. The first year was a lot of confusion and uh, people saw, thought that this government uh, cannot do anything compared to some of the previous regimes. When I look at the PTI government today, I do feel that at least at the level of the federal government, they have managed to pull up to the level of the usual regimes that come to Pakistan. So generally, whenever you have a government that is fairly functional by Pakistani standards, what they do is that they do have a few big initiatives, they do have a few reforms lined up, 
uh, and they have economy fairly in control by Pakistani standards. Again, I'm just I just want to emphasize that. And when I look at the PTI government today, I somehow feel that two and a half year into the government, they have managed to be at that place where economy is doing reasonably well. They have a few projects that they, if they do them, they can say that these are our legacy projects. And then they have some reforms in the pipeline. Some of them are meaningful, some of them not as meaningful. When I look at the previous governments, I think pretty much every government has followed this recipe. And again, I'm just talking about the federal government. So by that standard, I feel that they are at a level where whatever pipeline they have, if they follow through on that pipeline, I think they'll probably do as well as the previous government. That's fine. The second point is that why and how can they do it in the middle of their tenure rather than the beginning? So basically, you're absolutely right. If a government has to do a reform that is unpopular, then generally the first six to 18 months are the ideal period where they come in, they just follow through, they don't worry about the elections. But as you kind of get near to the next election cycle, your fears of losing popularity become very real. And I think that's a big trade-off. Secondly, the governments that generally follow through with reforms from day one are the governments which know very well what they have to do. They have a clear agenda of reforms and then they come in and they follow through. We do know that the government, PTI government, did stumble for the first month, a few months or a year or so. So I think that's why this is the window they have. I still think that there is still some time till the next election. There is time to do some unpopular reform, but the kind of reforms they are talking about, not all of them would be unpopular. So for example, if you look at the reforms in PIA or Pakistan steel mills, where there are layoffs involved, I, I think those could be put, uh, politically very contentious. But if you look, look at unbundling of uh, the power sector or a multi-buyer, multi-settle models, I don't think it's there's going to be that much hue and cry. And if you look at the IPP contract renegotiations, that's happening as we speak, right? It's the middle of the tenure and they are doing it. And I think that's, uh, that's, a, that's a decent reform uh, that has a huge potential to benefit Pakistan's economy. If I answered uh, your question. No, that, that's a good starting point. And I have a couple of follow-up questions on that. The first one was from, you mentioned a couple of times that what they do, what they have in the pipeline. So we're just curious if you can inform the audience what you think are top priority things that are in the pipeline that they're working on. You mentioned the steel mills and the PIA. The power sector one, I'm curious to get your thoughts on more specifically because you had a special advisor, Mr. Tavish Gohar, come in and there was a lot of talk about how he had a plan and was trying to execute it. But now reports indicate that he's out or on his way out and has resigned. So if these things are in the pipeline and from what I've read, at least from the newspapers, that power sector was a big thing, how do you see then the advisor coming in and then leaving very quickly and its impact on, on this entire process? So I think right after coming in, there are a few things that the government has already done. And I think I would think that putting in a market determined exchange rate was the biggest thing. And the government did that under IMF's advice and IMF's pressure. But I do think that's a, that's a great reform. And I say that because that provides a check 
against excessively increasing balance of payment uh, deficits or, or gap. Uh, so I think that's one. Now, if you look at their plans right now on reforms, there are a few things that they are planning. The first is the PIA and PSM, Pakistan Steel Mills. And there are plans for restructuring, for layoffs. Some of them have already been put in place. And I think that's a difficult one. And I'm trying to recall there was a court ruling on that as well. So of course, there are pressures from other quarters. But I think if the government starts developing the appetite for taking tough decisions, I think that's a solid piece of reform. Now on power sector, uh, I think uh, departure of Tabish Gohar is a setback for PTI government because I have heard good things about him. He seems to be a very clear-headed man. He seems to have a lot of domain knowledge. That's definitely a setback. But I think we do have to realize and understand that the power sector reforms that Tabish uh, talked about were not his ideas. They were there for a while and the government has been preparing for that. So I think uh, it was not Tabish's brainchild. So Tabish's departure should not mean that the government uh, should abandon those reforms. And if they do, I think that would be very unfortunate. Apart from that, there are other ideas. So for example, they are planning to restructure Pakistan railways, uh, unbundle that. I am not very optimistic on that. The unbundling alone can do wonders, but still they have a plan in place. Uh, recently, they have introduced some restructuring in Civil Aviation Authority. So I think that's, uh, that's another one. They are kind of bifurcating that. I think uh, it's stemming from the crisis they had about the pilot's licenses and their credibility and whatnot. So I think that's yet another one. I think the SAS umbrella is a big kind of a pipeline. The, the health cards, they have scaled that up. I think that's a, that's a decent reform. Although again, when we go into each of them, I think it's, it's, it's never black and white. There are things that the government needs to do. There are, there are good things and there are not so good things. But I do think that right now at the federal level, I see a pipeline of a number of initiatives that, that, that seemed decent. And so when you look at, for example, the steel mill and the PIA, some of the audience listeners, you know, will say that, look, didn't Asad Omar back in 2018, 2017, go to the steel mills and say that they will not lay them off and they will reform the enterprise and make it profitable again? Did they not promise these things? And here you are making yet another quote unquote U-turn about what to do with this. And personally, I think that what the government is trying to do is the right path forward. Cynically, they should not have opposed this back in the day when the PMLN was trying to do. And I hope that the opposition now does not play the same games that the PTI did on this topic. But what's your response to someone who says, well, you know, we're laying off people from these enterprises in the middle of the pandemic. And this is yet another U-turn by the government that actually had initially promised restructuring the organization and making it profitable versus offloading all the employees and unbundling the, the institute itself. So I would think that anyone uh, who is skeptical about any reform or any promise that PTI government does, I think that skepticism is fair. Right? because PTI has gone back and forth on a number of plans. Back in the day when Asad Umar said that we need to uh, put in place a holding company, and I'm forgetting the name, and I think he also kind of introduced that, and we will put all the SOEs under that holding company. And then, as you said, he said, we're not going to fire people. 
this uh, was the Malaysia the, model, right? That you're yes, talking about. Yes, exactly. Yes. Absolutely. Even at that time, it did not make sense to me because holding company is just a structure of ownership or of a management model. But when you are running a state-owned enterprises, uh, I think turning around a state-owned uh, state enterprise is not difficult, but it's complex, right? The recipe is not that unheard of. So if you want to turn around uh, an airline or a steel mill, there are a few things. You have to cut costs, you have to uh, improve profits. There, are, there is talent available in the market, in the world that you can bring in. They can turn around people. Sometimes you need equity injection. Uh, you lay off people and whatnot. So I think it's fairly standard. I think it is complex because generally governments do not have uh, the, the acumen or the appetite to take these tough decisions. And sometimes the political economy is difficult because government is very okay if this we do this thing, it may get challenged in court and then what do we do? So I think all those things make it difficult. What I am saying is that the stance that the government is now taking on Pakistan steel mills, on PIA, in my view, that is the correct stance. And when you look at some of the uh, layoffs that they are planning, some of the downsizing that they are planning, it does seem that they have the appetite this time around. But there are, there are many a slips between the cup and the lip, and let's see how it goes. Uh, but I think when you assess this particular statement, this stance, I'm in favor, how long they, are, they can go with this, uh, whether they implement it or not, I think time will tell. And that's what the line that you referred to in my article was about, that right now PTI's focus should be implement these plans. They have decent plans, implement them, or else they'll just be uh, left uh, as uh, wishes or all intentions. The other thing that, you know, I want to switch gears to another article of yours where you talked about the prime minister admitting some of his mistakes and talking about a trial and error approach. It caused the whole news cycle in and of itself, both on mainstream and on social media. Seems like a lifetime ago, given what's happened over the last three, four days about the Hazara massacre, which was a heinous, heinous crime and is, uh, is condemnable. But it was a huge news cycle. And you wrote about how the fact that the prime minister is admitting his mistakes and we should actually appreciate that. And you know the fact that he's learned from some of them I was one of the people who was actually critical of these comments of his because they were an indictment of the false promises he had made before elections about how he had a team and how he had plans, et cetera. And the counter argument from some of the folks to that criticism was, well, look, this is the first time they're coming into power. However, one looks at the cabinet and sees that a lot of the people have been in power before actually in many of the same positions, for example, straight trustees and railways, um, Hafiz Sheikh as finance uh, advisor, and so on and so forth. So how do you, you know, I would like to hear more about your thoughts about why that criticism about the PM and the PTI was unfair and what you were trying to get at in that discussion in terms of, you know, the fact that there was a trial and error approach and we should appreciate that, you know, in so many ways, like the steel mill issue, for example, the PTI has come to the right position after some period of time has lapsed? I think that is, thank you for asking that question, because I think that's a very, very misunderstood view that I still hold. But generally, I think I've not had the opportunity to explain that. But before I say that, you mentioned 
Hazaras. And I think PM statement yesterday was a big disappointment for anyone, even for objective PTI supporters. And yes, people tried to explain that he was referring to uh, the political uh, issues and not the Hazara community, whatever people say, I think it did reflect very, very badly on the government. So that's my view on that. Now, in terms of what I said in one of the articles on trial and error, uh, was that I don't think there should be any two, two, any two opinions about the fact that PTI government came across as if they were prepared, but they were not prepared. Right? I don't think there is any doubt in that. They took a long time in kind of uh, navigating their way through different issues. And only now one can see, okay, in some cases, they are probably settled. So I in no way believe that that's a good thing to have. I think if we want to, we should criticize lack of preparation on the part of PTI or any government that comes into place. I think admitting the fact that they have committed that error is something I appreciate because that brings in honesty. That brings in a culture of honesty. I'll give you a small example. I used to live in Lahore quite a few years ago and Shabazz city for the chief minister. And every day I would pass through Ferozpur road and one day they would carpet the road. Couple of months down the road, they just like uh, destroyed everything and then they widened the road. Then they again carpeted, then they did something else. Then they made a green belt. And then this uh, mass transit line Metro came in and then they again had to reconstruct, right? So they did something four times over. It was trial and error. Uh, do I support that? No. But if Shabazzri would have said, guys, we are sorry, we had to do that. We weren't planned. I think I am someone who would appreciate that honesty. My view on this is that Imran Khan admitting his mistake is there is nothing bad in it. Not being prepared, I think it is inherently bad. It is something that PTI uh, uh, should be criticized for. So this is what I meant when I uh, wrote that article. No, that's 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 good, helpful and good to clarify. And I think I appreciate the fact that the prime minister at least is more forthcoming and less egotistical about the fact that when he makes mistakes, he's open to accept that. We said it many times about the IMF, for example, that they should have gone in early and that he should have followed different advice, which I think is the right sentiment to have moving forward, because if he has to be prime minister for another two years and maybe longer, which is what the aspiration is, then you have to learn on the job and realize that there are certain mistakes that you should not keep repeating. Um, let's jump into more like structural deep reforms and what needs to happen in Pakistan. And you know, one of the things that there's always have been on the table, and I can remember for as long as I started following the, the, the need for reforms in Pakistan is reforming the civil service. You come from within the civil service, so you understand what, what the issues are much deeper than most people in Pakistan. Dr. Ishad Hussain is once again within government trying to push through these reforms that he's written about both as an academic and as someone who served within the government before. Um, but it is difficult. It is something that almost everyone across the political spectrum that you would talk to will agree that yes, we need to reform our civil service. 
but then they all fall short in terms of achieving the outcomes that are necessary. And really that, that lack of reform is holding Pakistan back. It's holding back economic growth. It's holding back innovation in the public sector. So I wanted to just hear your thoughts about number one, why is it so hard to reform the bureaucracy and, and has been a challenge for successive governments, both civilian and military? And what do you think needs to happen to sort of unlock this, this problem and move forward in the bureaucracy itself? Azair, I think reforming bureaucracy is always difficult. Reforms are always difficult. Meaningful reforms mean that you are disrupting the status quo. And reforming bureaucracy is all the more difficult because bureaucracy is what gets the wheel of the government going. Now, civil service reform is something in which everyone should be interested because if your civil service is not functioning, that means your government is not functioning. It means that whatever policy you are making, it will never be implemented the way you would want it to be implemented. So civil service reforms are the key. I think in my view, there are many issues, but in my view, there are two central underlying issues. One is that everyone wants to reform the civil service, but what they mean by civil service reform is very, very different. When you will ask a politician what civil service reform means, it, it, for them, it means people of their choice. Uh, they, they'll be, they should be able to place them. They feel that whenever they take a decision, that decision should be implemented as soon as possible. Bureaucracy should be enabling uh, by helping them in translating their vision into reality rather than coming up with rules and regulations uh, for not doing that thing. So I think that's a valid view, but that's what politicians believe. So in a way, so I'll quickly interrupt here. In a way, politicians, when they mean civil service reform, they're talking about an accelerated implementation of whatever plans they come up with. Yes, that, that is one, and pliability okay. in okay. some cases. Yeah. When you'll ask civil servants, and it depends on which race or creed of civil servants you're asking that question, but when you will ask the civil servants in general, all of them would say civil service reform should mean adequate compensation for them. It should mean less harassment by anti-graft agencies like NAB. It means tenure protection because they do not get adequate time on a position. And I do think that all of them are fair demands. When you go a little deeper and you ask Pakistan administrative service people, They'll say it's all about enforcement capability on ground. It means magisterial powers. It means autonomy. When you will ask people from police, they would say it is about police autonomy. When you will ask other services, they'll of course come up with their own answers. When you will ask private sector, uh, if the private sector is uh, the recipient of, uh, of government enforcement regulation, they are going to say civil service reform should mean uh, creating an enabling environment for businesses, less regulation, less rent seeking. And in some cases, if you talk to individuals, they would say civil service should be open to private sector talent so that they can also compete on grounds. And when you ask the citizens, for citizens, it's either about service delivery because unless and until all these reforms lead to improvement in the services that they receive, it is meaningless for them. 
or in some cases there is this uh, 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 resentment about perks and privileges of bureaucracy, uh, the large houses, the motorcades and everything and corruption and they believe that that needs to be fixed. So, so we can see that while everyone is interested in civil service reforms, everyone wants different things out of this reform effort and everyone kind of makes sense. We, all, of the, all of these demands are, are, are in my view, fair. And I'll, I'll get to that. The second problem is that civil service reform or the bulk of it is a long-term investment. It is like building a dam. I'll put down my money today and I will get the dividends 10 years, 15 years down the road. I would and, say that it's, 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 it's not even like building a dam because you can't even cut a ribbon to start off and at least show that you've started the dam and look, the economy is doing well because cement sales are up. Absolutely, absolutely. I think a very, very pertinent example. So you start today quietly in the back room and you would hope that in 15, 20 years, you will see the difference. So the inherently the incentive for politicians is very little to invest in those kind of long-term reforms. Now on ground, what happens is, and you talked about Dr. Ishrat and other people. So what happens is that if you are the prime minister, you will start getting these fragmented, isolated proposals, right? Someone would say, okay, civil servants are getting trained for their mid-career training. It's a four months long training program. Let's stretch, stretch it to six months. More training means more capable bureaucracy. Okay, right? I think if you are the prime minister, you would say, okay, fine, this, this makes sense. Then I would come and I'd say, actually, it's a six months training program. Government is spending a lot of money on that. People are spending a lot of time off their jobs. We don't get, uh, don't get quality talent. Uh, let's reduce that to three months so that people can be trained quickly and they should learn on job. Even and I will really sense. quickly add here, like if you train someone for six months, but they don't have security of the position they're in, you could move them out in the next three months and all the training's gone to waste because now they're in a new role all of a sudden. Absolutely, absolutely. So, 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 so if you are the prime minister, you would say, okay, that makes sense as well. Let's do that. So my point is that when you keep on bombarding the cabinet or the prime minister with different fragmented proposals, they don't know what's going on. Each proposal would look good on its own merit, but whether it would really move the needle or not is the real question. If I have to advise someone on civil service reform is number one, we have to pick reforms which can yield quick results because no one has the patience to invest in systems and structures for 20 years. And that is the demand of the political economy. If I have to draw it on a paper, I would say do 20 years reform, but realistically speaking, you have to do stuff which can yield results very, very quickly, number one. I think for someone sitting at the top, the lens to review any initial civil service reform proposals should be very, very simple. If you are the prime minister, you should only be concerned about two things. That if a particular proposal has been brought to you, it should either change things for you, which means that it should lead to speedy implementation of decisions, or it should improve the quality of advice given to you uh, as a prime minister, or it should change life 
for the people who have brought you to power, and I mean voters here, it should lead to service delivery improvement. Everything else is, I think, is peripheral to this whole discussion. And I think if you apply that lens, you would see very, very few proposals that can move the needle on either end of the spectrum very quickly. And I think that's where the focus needs to be. Otherwise, people would come up with varying opinions and we would never get to a place where we would know, okay, this is the direction to take. And, and I, probably it's a little oversimplification of the whole issue. We can go into more detail, but to me, this is really important like of absolute clarity at the top in terms of what is the impact that I'm looking for and then kind of review each proposal against that. And if they don't do that, they'll get lost in the details. And that's what's been happening uh, throughout these years. Also, in many ways, you end up with whoever is in power spinning their wheels on this question, right? And I think your point about everything looking good in on its own merit is very, very important to understand because the individual piece may look really good, but the sum of the parts is actually disastrous or does not even fit together and work, which is why you keep spinning the, the wheels in motion. Um, but when you talk about reforms that yield quick results, I want to dive deeper into this. So what are some of those things that you as a practitioner who understands this sector so deeply, like what are the things that can happen even in terms of let's say this government, but let's ignore this government just in general, what are things that the government in power can do to push through these, these short-term results that actually generate the momentum for something long-term to happen in this space? I think some of it is common sense, Suzette. So if uh, you are the man sitting on the top, I think the first thing you need to realize is that the civil service that you see today is the end product of 70 plus years of wrong policies, wrong incentives. And it's very, very difficult to correct the system at once in two, three, four years. And I think the focus is probably the most important thing. And I think the prime minister or the cabinet should pick up areas of reform. Okay, if they want to focus on state-owned enterprises, they want to focus on power sector, maybe one or two other sectors. Number one, then that's where they need to focus. Then come the routine, decent, good management practices. If you want someone to get the work done, you bring them in. First, your selection should be uh, outclass. You cannot experiment. You cannot, you cannot do trial and error, the, the kind of things we spoke about. So you put in place a sound mechanism to select someone. Uh, and then you bring that guy, even from within the civil service. I would think in some cases you should even get people from outside, but let's say you bring in a civil servant. Then you give him time to understand and put in place a plan, which means tenure security. Now I'm not saying that you bring in a law to provide tenure. I think it's in the interest of the politician to make sure that the people that they bring in on key positions need to be there for longer periods of time. The third thing is that when you bring in the person of your choice and you give him clear vision, you also need to give him clear autonomy and resources because civil service is part, is a, is a cog in the overall wheel of the government. Uh, you can even bring in the president of GE 
uh, and put him as secretary power Pakistan and he will fail with the kind of workforce and resources that you have. So you have to kind of then uh, uh, give him uh, adequate resources, the right people, right autonomy, right systems for them to be able to make a change. So I think that's one. The second is I think the government needs to kind of think through that what kind of expertise does he need? As you remember that uh, recently there was a court ruling on the roles of SAPMs and PM currently is relying on a number of SAPMs. And I think the debate there is that the PM thinks that the politicians do not bring to table the kind of skills that he needs. Politicians never bring those skills. They do bring that understanding, but they never bring those technical skills uh, to table. Bureaucracy and your technical advisors bring the, those skills. If you cannot find those skills in the bureaucracy, then it means there is some, there's something is wrong. And you need to kind of either open up induction at that level, or you need to bring in people as technical advisors, secretaries, MDs, whatever, at that level, because you need technical minds to implement. And you need the filter of a politician to give it a reality check, because politician has his skin in the game he has his roots in the people, he can give that proposal a sanity check, a political check, and I think that's a winning combination. So in my view, on the top, this is what the prime minister needs. Good people, follow up, clear targets, and good accountability. On the other end of the spectrum, when you talk about the people, I think that's, that's another thing. And I think this is where political will comes in. When you talk about uh, what people are undergoing in service delivery, there are a number of things that people have to go through. It's about rule of law, it's about education, it's about health. In my view, and this is my opinion, if you really want to fix the system, you have to fix rule of law. And probably that is where the ground level reforms need to happen the first. Because if you have rule of law, if you have certainty of or consequentiality of results, then everything kind of falls into place. But to do that is difficult because you do know that everyone knows what happens on ground. Uh, so when someone like Imran Khan or any prime minister, any government say that we want to, let's say, make life better for people, we want to remove corruption, I think more than the large political corruption they need to worry about street corruption. Because you and I know that when we go and walk into a public office, we are going to be asked for money. And it is no secret. You look at corruption barometer, you look at any survey, you will find out that uh, more than 50%, in some cases, two thirds of the people who avail a public service, they are asked for rents. And I think that's the real problem at that level. And how you fix it, you really need to make a few examples. You need to show- And, and before, so, sorry to interrupt here, but before a lot of people start commenting and saying, Hassan is, is, is you know, not talking about corruption openly. Rents is an academic term that includes corruption. bribery and corruption. I wanted to clarify that because I've run into that trouble at times as well. But when you say people seek rents and you go for public service, it's a bribe that's being asked for. And the academic term for that is rents, but sorry. Absolutely. Thank, thank you for clarifying this. Yes, yes, absolutely. 
I am talking about bribes and I'm not talking about because people generally they criticize me because I come from a particular service. So sometimes people say, okay, Hassan is from a from civil service from a particular group. So he seems to favor administrative service versus other service and whatnot. What I'm saying is that when you go to the street level interface of state versus citizen, whether you go to land revenue administration, whether you go to police, whether you go to any 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 regulatory function, you'd find out that people openly demand bribes. You go to any public works agency, it is an open secret that not, no contract can get processed without greasing palms. And I think probably in the short term, this is where there's an opportunity to make tense. You have to make a few examples and that can greatly reduce this problem again in one or two priority areas. And this is what realistically a government can do in the short run. If it works, you can scale it up if you get another chance. And by tinkering with people at the top, you start getting good advice, quality advice, good people, and then you start to affect change. Once you do that, then I think it's time to worry about longer term structural reforms, things like trainings, things like recruitment, ACRs, compensation, whatnot. Because for example, if you fix the recruitment today, it's not going to be before 15 years that you are going to get good people at senior level who can make a difference. But I think success can create its own way. And for any kind of reform, any government needs to demonstrate success. I do believe that success is infectious. You make success at one level, people get motivated, your confidence gets a high manifold, and you say, okay, it's doable, let's replicate that. But if you don't do that, doing a series of things that do not have any political ownership, which are merely process oriented, uh, which are good in some ways, but not good in other ways, it's going to be a waste of time. It's going to be a waste of energy. And more importantly, it will uh, remove and it will dilute people's trust in reforms. And right now, that's where we are standing. If you are in Pakistan, you talk to anyone and you talk about this word reform, people say, oh, we have seen it happening many times. It's, uh, some people say it's uh, something driven by donors. Some would say it's there to make money. Some would say, it's just like meaningless uh, a group of words that we have to use to, to say politically correct things. So people's uh, trust in reforms is no more there. And I think right now, what's most important is to do some of the things that can restore that trust so that people see the dividends of reforms. Yeah, the way I would explain sort of uh, the reform cycle to, to people who make that point that you were just making, is that it's almost like bringing in a car for service if you're filling up your fuel and and pumping up the tire and just maybe changing the oil that's not servicing that's routine maintenance and what reform is basically putting the car in the garage and changing the brake pads changing the oil filters changing the air filters it's the nuts and bolts that needs to be upgraded and cleaned up and there's a difference between that and routine maintenance and i think that's that's what is missing in Pakistan. But there's a, a few interesting points you made and I wanna get your perspective on this. The first was focus on a few areas of reform. And I think that's a very, very vital point, right? I, I remember reading this book called The Gatekeepers 
It was about chiefs of staffs in, in the White House. And I believe it was George Bush Sr.'s or Clinton's first chief of staff that made the quote there that, you know, his policy was that if you're going to have five things on the table of the president at any given point in time, and someone from his team, cabinet official or advisor, wants to bring on a sixth, they first have to take something off the table first out of the five. So at any point in time, we're not going to have more than five things in the works because there's only so much time. The team has to focus and do things right. So I think that's a very important point that you made there. Um, and, and, and this other thing about you know, focusing on the right things, it's almost like you see that in pictures then, right? So for example, recently in Burns Road, you started seeing repainting of heritage buildings actually done in the wrong way, but just put that aside repainting the buildings, whereas the real issue in Burns Road is the sewage that leaks out on the streets right by the food street. So how are you going to have a dynamic food street where there's raw sewage flowing out should be the priority, but instead you realize that the commissioner and his people thought that repainting the buildings would be the right way to do because it's a, it's a quick fix, quote unquote. Um, and then there's the issue of technical minds, and that's my question to you is when you look at the, the, the bringing into the bureaucracy these technical minds, whether you do private sector recruitment or not, my view is that one of the things that's also happened over the years is that private sector has become an actually attractive employer in Pakistan and, and has continues to grow in dynamism, which means that there's a talent dearth because Pakistan's youth literacy is down, our educational standards are not that high, and so there is this competition going on where the overall level of technicality of your labor has not grown, which has an impact on the bureaucracy. Now, I was curious about your thoughts on this, on this thought of mine about whether that plays a role in terms of this overall skilling level of the population writ large. So, uh, absolutely. I think uh, this, the, the skill level has gone down. I think it has a bearing on the public sector as well because public sector does not work in isolation. I also see that kind of decline in skills in the public sector, probably at a much larger scale than the private sector. And, and it's, not, it's not about civil service because civil service as we know it is a very, very um, a small part of the government. The real government is below grade 17. Uh, the nuts and bolts of the civil service or government machinery. And I think the skill level is extremely, extremely poor. Even if you look at civil servants, I do see a lot of skill gaps. But uh, if you remember the conversation we had a few minutes ago, it is about focusing. If you want to, it is Pakistan is a dysfunctional country, right? There are no two opinions about it. And right now we are talking about picking up two or three areas where you want to make your mark. So essentially we are talking about accessing a very narrow pool of people who you can trust. You, you like people in those respective areas. So for example, if power sector is something that you want, if urban development is something that you want, if state-owned enterprise is something that you want to bring change in, that we are talking about a narrow set of good people to bring and then leave it to those people to build their teams and to hunt for talent. Yes, uh, overall, the level of skill is going down, but it is a country of 220 million people. And I think if you are looking for, let's say 10, 20, 50, 100 people, I have my faith that you can find those people. If we come across those people 
on the internet, on the media, in our daily lives. We do know that Pakistan has a lot of young, bright people. And I think it's not difficult to kind of identify that narrow pool. And if you remember, that was actually the promise of uh, Imran Khan in his initial days. It's going to be, I don't know, 100 people or 200 people or something or 50 people that uh, never see, uh, saw the light of the day. I think it actually, he, what he said was right. He couldn't follow through. But I think we need to go back to that promise or that idea, whether it is Imran Khan or someone else, that we need to at least identify a narrow set of people who could be the torchbearers for any change that you want to bring. Well, that's a good segue into my next question, which dives into this, like, what's the theory of change, right? So Imran Khan's theory of change initially was corruption, if the, and even within corruption, it was that if the person at the top is honest, it will pervade down, down below. And so I will come into power and corruption will end because my government is going to be cleaner. And that was the theory of change. It's a very simplistic theory of change and there are more complex theories of change about how do you deal with corruption and incentive structures and rent seeking in society and elite capture. And I was curious to hear about what is Hassan Khawar's theory of change in terms of what needs to happen in Pakistan and how to make that happen beyond the bureaucracy, beyond the, the specific topic itself. How do you see given the polarization in society, given our fractured politics, given the role of the judiciary and the establishment in, in terms of managing the political economy of the country. How do you see change moving forward in, in, in this polarized country? So is there part of it is something that I said earlier. You know, Pakistan or any country in Pakistan situation is like a, is like a rusting old building. So much is going wrong. There is seepages, there is like electricity, problems, electricity wires, there are repairs to be done. It, to me, it matters less from where you start. Many people say that corruption is not the right end to start, which is fine, but it could be as well. I think what matters more is that you need to create islands of success. You look at Pakistan's history in the last two or three decades, people said, if you could, uh, build an institution, for example, Pakistan, this National Highway and Motorway Police, then it means that change is possible. If you can build Nadra in this country, which is a fairly credible organization, people, people's trust is restored. If you still to date, although recently there was a scandal in Punjab Public Service Commission, where a paper was leaked, but till date, civil service seems to be the most sought after a profession for many people and to till date, Federal Public Service Commission has been, has remained above board. So I think you need to create those successes which can then infect quote unquote other people. So you want to start from corruption, start from corruption, but show results. You want to start from civil service reforms, fine. You want to start from state enterprises, that's fine. But I think you need to create success. Now, this is one part of theory of change that if you have a visionary leader, if you have a capable government, and if in a tenure, uh, that government is able to create that institutional success in one, two or three areas, in my view, that success can then infect other people, people can get motivated and it can spread. So that is one version of theory of change, but I have another one. 
let's say we are not optimistic and we say okay we do not have a capable government and we never have a capable government who will ever be interested in institutional success people are going to build roads dams whatever but they are not going to fix institutions i think at the other end of the spectrum lie the citizens and thanks to technology and thanks to social media the ultimate dream of social accountability is coming to reality in a functional democracy politicians were held accountable after 5 years in a democracy uh, like pakistan you never know sometimes elections would not happen other times there would be questions about credibility of elections but with social media your accountability is instant if prime minister imran khan gives a statement on hazara community he is held accountable from the very next minute and that's how strong the process is so i do believe that with time this new model of social accountability would get stronger and stronger and they are going to put more and more pressure on the government and i'll i'll tell you an anecdote so you know politics in pakistan is very polarized and uh, imran khan has used to have a huge following in youngsters so the other day i was talking to a couple of youngsters some relatives of mine two young women who were like 21 22 years old and i asked them who did you vote for or who did you support and they said imran khan and i said okay if the elections happen now who would you support him both of them said no and i said why so one of them was in medical college and she had some issues there with pmdc and what not other one said well i have not seen him deliver on a, uh, on his promises and i said okay then who do you want to vote for in the next election and both of them said that we would not want to vote for anyone because they were disillusioned but that that disillusionment is also kind of form of an accountability that people will hold the politicians to and i think this new generation is very unforgiving they are aware they get all the information yes they support one party or the other but they also expect performance in return and i do think that that is going to change this whole paradigm in the next few years i am again being optimistic but i do believe that and even if you look at other areas i think sooner or later change will come so for example we talk about undocumented economy we talk about corruption we talk about rents we talk about undervaluation overvaluation what not you go to china you go to other countries it's all about fintech every transaction is going through people's cell phones and our journey on that on that trajectory is slow but it is happening but i do see that in a few years time everyone is going to use their cell phones to pay everything and there goes your problem of undocumented economy so whether we like it or not whether we want it or not whether we welcome it or not change will happen at its own pace the only problem is that when you do not effect change and you let the change happen or take its own course then it also happens on its own terms and sometimes those terms are not very not very beautiful or pretty it they can have unintended consequences but that is what my theory of change is 
that change is inevitable. It's happening one day at a time, uh, whether we can see it right now or not. So you're optimistic in this one. And so I want to push back on a couple of things you mentioned here. I, I fully agree on the iron success thing. In fact, as you were explaining that, I was thinking about your earlier point about SAS being something the government has done right, right? But SAS would not have been possible without Benazir Income Support Program. And it's actually like the NHA, one of the few things that there has been consensus from one government to the other to grow it and nurture it and fix the issues that are there as part of the implementation. So you went from Benazir Income Support Program under the PPP to the PMLN expanding it and further solidifying that program to the Imran Khan government taking it to fundamentally redefining and broadening the entire program, but you don't get there without the first two investments, right? And so similarly, I think we need more such initiatives where there is consensus. It, and I agree on your point about politicians having skin in the game, because if BISP, there was no skin in the game, i.e. The, the, the citizen who's voting for you did not like that program, there would be no incentive to continue and grow it. But the PMLN, the PTI realized that, wait, people actually like this. If we roll this back, there are political costs that we don't want to pay. There's actually more benefit to nurture this program. But your point about social accountability is where I want to push back, where you say that it, the, the, the response cycle is very quick. It's immediate. It's real time. And we saw this with, with the Hazara killings uh, most recently and the prime minister's accounts. But there's also the debate that can be hijacked. So are you the optimist in that side that people like the young uh, voters, PTI voters who are now disillusioned that you spoke with, that they see through that sort of what is called troll army type behavior online where narratives are pushed? Do you think citizens are, especially younger ones, are more aware about seeing through some of that propaganda? So as I said, I am cautiously optimistic. I, I told you that if a leader wants to bring in changes, then there is that model of creating islands of success. If you don't do that, then change will happen on its own. As I, as I said, there is going to be, there are going to be unintended consequences. And I think what you're referring to is one of them. When you leave that for the people to, to, to stare, and when you leave it to the masses, then yes, what you are referring to can absolutely happen. And as we see every day, every day I open up my Twitter, I look at what's trending uh, every day. And most days I feel nauseous by the, by the hatred, by the polarization that I'd see in Pakistan. But I do believe that with time, these things take a course of its own. I cannot see into the future that which way it would solve. But you cannot keep on raising the temperature forever. And right now, it's kind of peaking in terms of polarization. And of course, there are other larger forces involved as well. We talked about uh, this, uh, fair, what do you call, uh, fifth generation warfare and whatnot. So I think those elements are also there. Of course, troll armies are there. And I think it's very, very visible. But I do think that all this ugliness all this social media activism, it does create pressure on both sides. So if one party feels the need to bring up its own troll army, it's because it's feeling the heat. And that's why I am saying that politicians today feel much more accountable or should feel much more accountable 
than they used to feel probably a decade ago. And when that happens, people do know that we are living in a transparent uh, building. Uh, everyone is looking at us and there is more pressure to deliver. So, so that's what I want to look for. Uh, I do agree with you that it's looking at the glass half full, the other half is always empty. So it, it depends on which way you look. No, I think, uh, and again, I think the polarization thing is perhaps the, the most near term threat to stability, whether you look at Pakistan, you look at even the United States, I'm sitting here in Washington and we just lived through a coup attempt that you know most of us would have never imagined happening in Washington DC. And it is a direct result of polarization and propaganda and all these attempts to misinform the people and rile them up to an extent where they take matters into their own hands and you have something like what you just saw on in, on the US Capitol happen right and I think Pakistanis have seen that more than Americans have Americans haven't seen something like this in a couple of centuries but you see this all over the world happening right and I think it is the direct sort of there's two things happening at the same time one is that cynical elites have fed this sort of polarization debate for their own ends to make their own meet their own ends. But at the same time, there are real issues on the ground that have been unaddressed and unresolved for far too long. And either it leads to disillusionment for the, the, the two young uh, people that you spoke with, or it forces other young people to take matter into their own hands and do something that has unintended consequences. So I fully agree that at some point, whether you're in Pakistan or the United States or India or Bangladesh, you have to start addressing those root problems before it's too late. And, and before I let you go, Hassan, this has been a fascinating conversation. I just wanted to ask you, what are two or three books that have deeply influenced you? They can be fiction, nonfiction, what have you, um, and that you recommend people pick up and read. Uh, yes, I, I also really enjoyed the conversation, uh, Zeb. In terms of books, you said that I'm a I'm a I'm an optimist, and I yes, I think I'm charged. I'm guilty as charged. Uh, I do like to read uh, inspirational books, and I do want my quote of inspiration every day. And one of my most favorite authors and leadership gurus is Robin Sharma, um, who who's based in Toronto. And recently he wrote a book, The 5am Club, which is about how you can change your life. If you start disciplining your life, you start getting up early. I am still reading that. I really liked it. Uh, so I think that is something uh, anyone should read who wants more inspiration in life. So, so that's one. Uh, the other one uh, that I read, not recently, but a while back, but I think that had a profound impact on me was the very famous book, Sapiens, by Yuval Noah Harari. I think it is probably many people have read it, but those who haven't, I think they should give it a read because that really opens up a very new, fresh perspective for you. And it helps It, it makes so you think things. about human progress, right? Absolutely. And, 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 and also where you stand in terms of the controversies, mm -hmm. uh, the politi politics, the polarization, and you kind of start thinking, okay, what's the point, right? So, so it had a profound impact on me. So that's another one. Uh, I am also reading, I'm halfway through this very interesting book, Directorate S, uh, about uh, ISI. It's again a famous one. 
So anyone who has interest in Pakistan's history, role of military, other things, I think it's a, it's a, it's a fascinating book. So a, a few, I actually read all sorts of books. So there's quite a variety of the books that I'm reading in, or I've read recently, uh, but this is who I am. Yeah, so I'll add the 5 a.m. club to my list because I've, one of my goals for 2021 is to read more books like that. I've read Sapiens and Director Tess, and they're both excellent reads for anyone who hasn't read them before. I think Sapiens was sort of like a, a mind explosion as I read. I remember reading it and I was like, wait a minute, like this is insane what this book is about. And to me, the most interesting thing about it was how human beings have been masters at creating myths. And it is those myths that have propelled us forward, whether it is about the concept of nation state, which is a very modern myth that we have created and agreed upon as, as humans, or if you go back all the way to the concept of money, and again, money is just a myth that we agreed upon to, 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 to use it to push our boundaries forward. And I think that book really makes you question about, you know, how human beings think and how societies sort of come together around these unifying messages or destroy each other around divisive messages. And I think it's a, it's a good read in that sense. Yeah, and, and you know, I think what's interesting is that uh, the way you described it, the myths are the reason that humanity has propelled forward, but myths are also the reason that we are held back in so many other ways. So I think in terms of our belief, the divisiveness and everything. So I think that is to me a very fascinating concept that without myths, the mankind would not be where it is today. But it's, if, it's, if it were not for myths, we would have gone far ahead yeah. uh, in this world. So I think that's very fascinating. Yeah, Absolutely. and it's like, the, it's like the glass half full, glass half empty concept, but over millennia in terms of the evolution of the species. But Hassan, thank you so much for taking out the time. This was wonderful, really appreciate you sharing your insights and thoughts with us and wishing you all the best for the days ahead and stay safe under this pandemic. Thank you, Zair. It was such a pleasure uh, to, to invite me. It was a very fascinating conversation. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you once again.